We just had a, a week-long meditation retreat here for the Lai community, uh, and just ended today. And that's always very nice, to inspiring to see Lai people uh, making the effort to come here to make that commitment. Uh, Usually, also this time, at the end of the retreat, there tends to be one, one question, at least, about specifically with meditation retreats and how to maintain, perhaps, the, the, the clarity and the calm found in the meditation retreat when coming back to the busy uh, life out there in the world. And uh, uh, we had this, this question also this time. So perhaps the main thing for me, to approach this, if, you've, if, you, if you're doing meditation retreats, I think most of you have had uh, experience with that, is rather, I think, not to get too fixed on the idea of somehow having to maintain that those particular, maybe, you say, states of, of clarity or, or more calm focus, if, if it has worked for you, if that's what was one of the outcomes of the meditation retreat, which is probably most of the time next to impossible anyway, uh, because those things are dependent on circumstances. That's partly I, I understand, particularly for you as, as lay people, and not living in the, uh, with, the, you know, with the constant you know, environment of the, the context and the structure of a monastic community, which is of course partly you know, why these monastic communities and, and monasteries exist, to, to help you know, with that structure to you know, keep you know, like a constant kind of extra influx of, of energy and, 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 the, and keep us feeding us this perception to encourage us and to keep us going in our practice. Then the idea, uh, if, if you don't have that in, in, in your life, is, uh, I guess, the idea to, to have you know, this bit of time aside, if you can al allow yourself to go a bit more uh, deeper into your practice, to, to start to de develop some of those qualities, to use that particular kind of occasion, this kind of idealized framework. But I think uh, we, we're making a mistake if we set that as it were against our um, perhaps apparently more ordinarily uh, day, daily kind of life uh, experience in, in terms of practice. Or we can easily, I think, overvalue the, the import of, of uh, intensive meditation practice. Um, Particularly, perhaps, no, I might be wrong, but particularly in the West, also the, the, in the way that maybe in the West we started, you know, historically to, to get into uh, also Eastern spiritual traditions. Because I remember in my, in my own life, like I say, first, you know, if it's, it certainly was the case for me, um, first of all, I came through a more intellectual appreciation of philosophy and, and then spiritual traditions, you know, trying to study and to understand. And then there's, you come to a point where you realize, well, it's all very good. You can all kind of read about those theories and, and, and techniques and things like that. But uh, you don't really get to shift very much 
uh, either in, in terms of one's own dis-ease, maybe perhaps with life, nor it really kind of something that would seem like, you know, these promised breakthroughs to a, a, a deeper and perhaps liberating insight into the nature of things are. It's just kind of intellectual understanding, isn't it? So it's just accumulating theories and knowledge that you can think about and argue perhaps with other people who have different theories. But it's, it remains very unsatisfactory. You know? So then, for example, in my case, there, also there was this, this attraction towards the possibility of having actually practices, spiritual practice, practices, techniques, you know? attraction towards meditation, you know, which, um, whatever that might be, you know, to find something. Then the, the idea that when you develop this, these practices, then there's something that you can actually get to in a more um, experiential way. And that is really what does the trick which would really transform my life. Or that I could realize those things and maybe become a, a realized or more realized being. You know? So that those things are not just theories that I know about and good ideas. Seems to be the, the obvious way of going about it. And so then I, that's the way I came to Buddhism, you know? first of all, through meditation. I started to meditate, and certainly there was some sense, you know, it, it just you know, didn't all become clear with <laughs> first meditation, but certainly there was something that you got a kind of. Aha, yeah, there was definitely was something there and, and um, that, that gave me a taste you know, for something more experiential that seemed to be worthwhile to, to follow up, to intensify, to go for. And then maybe afterwards, for me, I think fairly quickly, uh, maybe for most of you, but for some people it, it tends to take maybe quite some time, then, then there's a discovery, well, there's much more to this Path of, of transformation than just meditation. You know, some people then, then we, we, we become aware. Like for example, the Buddha, of, he was teaching an eightfold path. He wasn't teaching a onefold path, you know, of mindfulness or meditation, but an eightfold path you know, of cultivating the heart, which is actually explicitly designed to encompass all aspects of our life. You know, because if we want to actually transform our lives, then we can't really leave any aspect of it out. And I think it's an idle fantasy or even a dangerous fantasy. You know, this, this idea of that we just, you know, if you just retreat, as it were, from our life into a more a retreat situation or what, whatever it's available, possible, or Im imaginable for us, and then just work on the specifics of some kind of technique of meditation, just working directly, homing in on our mind there and then investigating, investigating with intensity, that somehow maybe just through that we come to a point where, where suddenly something gets transformed and there's a realization, which then when we, we can come out of that, it's suddenly going to be applicable and make us uh, able to see and live our life from a totally different perspective or vantage point, let's say from an enlightened point of view. You know, we come out of this cave <laughs> or hut on the mountain or whatever that could be in, you know, if you translate it into our more, say, urban kind of, you know, there are people who, who practice or try to practice as city hermits and, and you know, whatever, or going into a intensive, um, ongoing vipassana retreat in some, you know, from a retreat center or in a monastery in, in Burma or doing one of those, those long, many-year kind of Tibetan kind of retreats or something. And then the idea that you come out of that and you're somehow a transformed person and then suddenly everything in your life, all the areas are going to be, you know, the way you approach them and the way you experience them and the way you relate to them is going to be all transformed in the same way. It's all just going to become enlightened as it were, as, and, you know, as part of the package. I don't think that's, that's what usually happens, and that's certainly not what the Buddha envisaged and the, the, the way the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught it the other way around, isn't it? The, the first thing 
if, if we, we have this kind of threefold division in the in the in the eightfold path, is is sila. That's that's attention to the ethical quality of our life, and that again very explicitly is not just a preliminary practice, but according to the Buddha, it's a very foundation no, on which uh, we can actually build then our path and our uh, efforts of for, for transformation. So foundational, it's kind of fundamental. And that also means not, not just as a foundation so that we, like we, yeah, first we put like the pre preliminary work, we put kind of a foundation down, and then we go down to the real work. Now once we've got done that, we have attended to that well enough, then we can go to the real transformative work through meditation or something. Rather, I think it's, it's the case that many of those, say, practices um, or aspects of, you know, of, of ways of living our life can be very transformational themselves. The first one, usually, that the Buddha started with usually was teaching was, uh, was uh, generosity. Now, usually, he would, if you were to give a gradual discourse, that's what was usually the first quality that he would teach about, um, generosity. Partly because he felt uh, that that's the wholesome quality of, of the human mind that's most accessible to, to human beings in general. But then you can also see an act of generosity if, if you give something away, be it material things uh, or our time or attention. You know, whenever we, we, we engage in generosity, there's an Im immediate result, isn't it, of, of joy. It brings joy immediately if you're generous. And uh, why is that? You know, of course, that's a beautiful thing to do. But I think it's also because it, it is, it is a, it's a concrete, direct act of shifting out of self-centeredness. You know? It's an opening up. Know, from our ego concerns, it expresses our uh, sense of belonging, of connection. It, it is, it is, it is a, a practical way of transcendence, of transcendence of our of our ego concerns, of the me first. You know? So that is in itself something that has transformative power. If you take it on as a practice and really pay attention to that, and see what that does to you know, if you make that a habit, a positive habit, to rather practice generosity than stinginess, you know. And of course, we both are capable of both things of, and, and of a mixture of it. And it's just something that is pertinent, isn't it, in our, in our life. It's something that we can pay attention to in all kinds of situations. You know, uh, am I generous here? Or is there, is there a movement of, try, of not being generous? And then we can take that as a sign. Oh, so why is that? You know, what is, can, I, can I actually practice with it? Can I maybe open up a bit more here? Is there, or what's underneath it? What prevents me from being generous? You know, it, it can become also an interesting investigative practice. The same uh, with, the, as with the next step from generosity. You know, it's a, in, another distinction that is sometimes made in, this, in the in threefold distinction you know, in the past is dana, sila, bhavana. So dana means generosity, first bit. Then the second one is sila, which is what I mentioned before attention to the, to the ethical quality of our life or more directly also translated as restraint, moral restraint. You know. It's already usually a little bit more difficult in generally for, for most of us. You know. um, even if we, if we have a lot of difficulties with restraint, we can still be very generous. You know. even, even a robber can be generous you know, with, <laughs> with his loot, at least with, among his friends or something like that. You know, there's something that we can perhaps more, more easily access. But then the next one, the next step would be restraint. But again, it's an area that, or an equality that affects all kinds of areas in our life. Mm -hmm. And something 
that has, again, it's not a, just a prelim, preliminary practice. It has transformative power itself if you pay attention to that because if you practice restraint, it's something, you know, restraint is about being able to set boundaries for ourselves and respect to things that we consider as, as not useful, as unwholesome. Well, that's about, about things that, that we discern as being harmful. So uh, to be able to say no to us, to put boundaries for ourselves, no, we're not going to go into this area because we realize this is, is going to do us harm or it's going to do harm to other people. So we create a boundary for us is in which we are comfortable to move and to act, which is just encompassing that which is we recognize as wholesome. That's inside our boundaries. So the capacity to actually define boundaries for ourselves in that way and then to respect them which is, which is, again, is of course a practice. It's something that we need to learn, something that we need to work at. No? It's not something that we either have or don't have. It's a quality that we can develop. It's something that is going to transform us if we grow with it, because we're going to grow in confidence. No? We, can, we can trust ourselves to the extent that we know that we can keep to those commitments. We can trust ourselves. And other people can trust ourselves. No? If you have those commitments on SILA about, about honesty, harmlessness, uh, more integrity, and therefore the Buddha calls, you know, this, the, the commitment to the five precepts, to moral restraint, is a gift of, um, of fearlessness, because if we make the commitment to that and we keep it, means other beings don't have to be afraid of us, because we make and keep a commitment to harmlessness. And actually it applies even to ourselves. We can trust ourselves. We don't have to be afraid of ourselves, you know, if we, if we can keep that, that commitment. And that can be transformative. Actually, if you look at this, a really committed practice of generosity and sila, I believe, can be much more powerful, uh, a tr transformative tool of ego-centered and therefore suffering-inducing habits than many, many, many hours of watching your breath while you're sitting on the meditation cushion. And so then, if, if you follow this, this threefold distinction, well, then we would have... Um, Sila, Samadhi, Panya, isn't it? So then we have Sila, then Samadhi would be what we maybe more generally understand to be kind of meditation, cultivating, concentrating the mind. And then Panya, wisdom, what hopefully is going to come out of that, not just of the Samadhi, but of the whole you know, structure, the whole path. So Bhavana, then in, in the Buddha's terms, what, what, what he had to offer was the eightfold path. No? So that's what I started you know, saying. He didn't offer a onefold path, but an eightfold path. So that's what's understood to be the Buddha's presentation of what, is, what needs to be encompassed for cultivating the heart if you want to reach liberation, the end of suffering, not creating suffering for ourselves or for others. And the first one of that is right view. You know, again, that is a, it's a practice path, the Eightfold Path. So you might wonder, what is, what is right view? Right, there's, there's, a, there's a famous uh, discourse, um, the ninth discourse in the Majjhima Nikaya, called the Discourse on Right View, where in an assembly of, of bhikkhus, Buddhist monks, they asked uh, the, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta, Venerable Sariputta, to define right view for them. And interestingly, he goes through quite a number of different definitions of right view. You can look that up if you're interested. It's, a, it's the ninth discourse in the middle length, same in the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, but one of them is, the, is actually the under, is, is the definition of right view as understanding the Four Noble Truths themselves. And then, of course, part of the Four Noble Truths is the Fourth Noble Truths, is the Eightfold Path, of which the first factor is right view. <laughs> so you've got a circularity there, isn't it? 
Well, I see right view much more as a practice. You know, it's something that we can practice. And it's basically, first of all, then it's a contemplation of the Four Noble Truths or contemplation of our life in terms of the Four Noble Truths, you know, which is about you know, suffering, the uh, cause of suffering, the possibility of an end to suffering, and then the Eightfold Path. So it means that we look at our experience in those terms that we uphold it, that it's something that is actually important for us. Not any kind of experience that we have, that, that is in fact the, in which we actually attend our experience in, in, in terms of those, those, those qualities that the Buddha presented to him. So that's the way in which we become, actually, we start with having, a, the, the Buddha offers us a, a, rel, a relevant map you know, for our experience that points out the significant criteria to which to attend to if you're interested in understanding how we cause suffering in our life and how we can come to stop doing that, how we come to uh, an end to that through understanding. We've got an entry point to that, so right view, to looking into the right direction. We've got a map. And then we can start to cultivate that so that right view becomes more refined. So it's not an absolute thing that we either have or we don't have but it's a particular way of, of taking a particular kind of interest in our experience you know, with the view towards understanding suffering, the end of it, and then it's something we can work upon. Mm. So again, that is a practice you know, that we can do anytime, not just on a meditation retreat, but in any kind of circumstances. It depends under which criteria actu are you actually looking at your experience if you're examining it. So this is always an important thing, whether you're having a conversation with a friend or whether you've got a problem... Uh, at work or in your family or something. Well, we've got, of course, all kinds of different criteria and agendas under which we look at those experiences. You know, what is in there for me or, you know, why is this happening to me or, or, or whatever, you know. But to just to bring up this kind of point of perspective, well, what can I actually learn from this in terms of the Four Noble Truths? How do the Four Noble Truths actually apply in here? So what's actually the suffering in here? What's the cause of the suffering? You know, what does my intuition or my understanding tell me which, which way, which direction is actually here in this, actually the possibility for the end of suffering? And then what is actually the practice that, that is relevant here? You know, I just remember like uh, Ajahn Sumedho, Lungpo Sumedho, was saying this, you know, he had this, this wonderful little book on the Four Noble Truths, isn't it? And he was saying that was his first, his entry point in terms of Buddhist, Buddhist reflection that still his main reflections after, I don't know how many, 45 46, 47 years of practice. You know. There isn't anything to go on from the Four Noble Truths. It takes you all the way. Everything that you need in terms of reflection you know, for, about suffering, the end of suffering, is in the Four Noble Truths. You know, it's, it's the first and the last teaching. It's the most profound, and it takes you all the way. And it's, it's inexhaustible in that sense. I mean, we might think we understand the Four Noble Truths intellectually. You read it once. But if you really apply it and keep applying it to your life, in any aspects, in all situations in your life, it's an inexhaustible wellspring for reflections and insight. That is, so that's a transformative practice because it makes us think about our life in a particular way and it makes us attend to our life in a particular way and depends on, on how we attend, with what interests, with what questions we attend to our life. On that depends actually what we actually see. Insights is, of course, not about interesting ideas. It's about new and different perceptions, that we perceive something new or that we perceive an, an apparently old and already known thing in a new way. And new perceptions 
or different kind of perceptions are, are triggered by good questions, um, by particular good and, and skillful angles uh, from which or through which um, to, to, to attend to and look at and investigate our experience. So that's you know, um, the, the fact of, of the practice of right view in Four Noble Truths. And then out of that, of course, uh, ideally, hopefully, the other factors of the Eightfold Path will unfold. You know, then from right view, from, from an understanding, comes the right kind of thought or aspiration, you know, commitments to, to harmlessness and kindness, and the third one being renunciation, which is often one that gets, people get a bit mystified about, or you know, what's renunciation, say, in lay life. And it's not, renunciation is, of course, not about moral issues. Uh, it's restraint, which is about more issues, the boundaries that we put down uh, against things that we recognize as unwholesome. That's about restraint, moral restraint. Renunciation is, as a practice, is a vo voluntary uh, step that goes further, which is more about, first of all, about simplifying our life, if you find that useful, in order to focus, keep focusing our energy more on what we feel is really relevant, what's most important. You know, it applies in the same way as anything. If you if you feel you want to really focus your en energy on something that is really important for you right now in life, then often we have to make sacrifices. It means other things we're going to have to, you know, we have to withdraw our attention from other things that would distract us. Same, of course, if you're interested in, in the spiritual investigation and you really want to focus our energy, then it can be useful to simplify our life, to, re to renounce some things. And then also as a practice to just experiment again to, to see more, more clearly in the, the, the energy of desire and attachment because our minds, you know, we tend to be so clever. Uh, one thing about the cleverness of the mind is that it's, it's capable of justifying just about anything. And we probably all have some experience. The more clever you are, you're more good, you, the more good you get is, is justifying just about anything that you come up with, <laughs> particularly in the, in, the, in the realm of desire. We can often delude ourselves even about, you know, the, the nature and the strength of our attachments pretending or believing really that we're much less attached than we are. Often, of course, the test is if you really even temporarily give something up, then suddenly we get a chance to really see you know, where the energy is pulling. You know, if we actually made a commitment as well, if this desire comes up, we're just not going to follow it. You know, it's a way that we can actually really honestly see how much desire is actually there and how much it pushes us. And again, this is then the same, or very similar with restraint, of course. It's also building a tool or, or developing this, this, the capacity of saying no to ourselves. So again, it strengthens this, this capacity for, for containment. And that's a very essential tool if we want to develop spiritual practices, particularly also is, you know, if we keep uh, empowering our mind with concentration practices and all that, we need to have a good container. Uh, otherwise, if you don't have that, it can be actually quite dangerous even to get you know, very good at things like concentration or something because it's not in itself something that sorts you out in terms of your giving you moral understanding and, and moral kind of values, but it, it can focus the energies of the mind a lot so that you get a much more powerful kind of mind. And then if you get off of your meditation cushion and you get into your kind of usual kind of ways of relating uh, with, with, with things and structures and people, then this, this increased intensity and focus uh, of the mind will also be fed into those relationships. And not necessarily always in a wholesome way. It can also focus and intensify your biases and your preferences. And if they are not examined, then that doesn't always have 
um, hold some results or hold some consequences. The next three then, of course, are um, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So that's in all to do with actually putting our right intention also into uh, practice. No? That, that has to do then with, 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 with practicing according to the precepts, no? according to uh, harmlessness, honesty, harmlessness in speech. And again, those are practices. No? They're not just ideals and they're not just commandments either, but they're things that we can work with. No? They give uh, contain, a container as well, of course, because that's that's the point of of, of sila. Most of those uh, precepts are actually, wasn't that, be termed in in negative terms, isn't it? To refrain from you know, doing things that are that are harmful. As I was saying, if you don't pay attention to that and then just go to the, the meditation practices proper, particularly with with you know fourth intensity, um, the the samadhi, which is the, the last factor of the path, actually then we can easily just develop um, uh, imbalances. No, that's, that's what we need, to, uh, we need to pay attention to. If we haven't actually paid attention to those factors in, in, no, in, in our life, those aspects of our life, then we just develop intensity. And even if we get to concentrated states of mind and clarity, maybe in a meditation retreat or meditation cushion, if we come back, well, one thing as I was just saying, those energy might actually be focused and directed in unhelpful in unwholesome directions if they're not examined. But even if we don't do that, we might just, if we, if we set them against you know, our experience of our more ordinary life and then perhaps more ordinary state of, states of consciousness, then we create more conflict, isn't it? Then maybe the, the, the busyness and uh, maybe the, you know, the conflicts in our life will even appear more unbearable you know, in comparison to the refinement and peace that we might have been able to develop in meditation retreats. And then we can easily get into a, a, a spiral you know, of, of, a, of positive feedback. Well, we, we experience that, that increased difficulty, feeling more brittle about it, you might getting irritable, or feeling, then we want to go back to the nice states that we might have achieved in meditation. And then our meditation practice, particularly if you're good at, at concentration practice, can just be, become a way of removing ourselves from those areas that we find difficult you know, and kind of blotting it out, going back to the peaceful state of mind. And then we start to create this, this conflictive dichotomy, you know, just getting away from the areas that where we experience difficulty and, and suffering in our, in our life, which is unbalanced. You know, even, if we, even if we manage that, you know, as, as, as in general, if we just develop our strengths all the time, but we neglect the areas we, where we have weaknesses, sooner or later those weaknesses are going to catch up with us. That's why the Buddha started with, with the attention to, to sila and to, to include all the aspects of, of our life, our, our relationships. Because if you start to be able to, to become more, more even and capable and balanced and aware in, in those different aspects of our life, then that is something that is, is actually much more easy to, to work it that way around. It's something that we're also going to be able to actually take with us onto our medi meditation cushion, if it were, in our practice. We're going to start to find, feel, sooner or later, we, we start to, to experience the, the results of that also in our meditation. If we become more, more able um, to stay clear and balanced when we are meeting conflict, 
when we're meeting turbulence, when we meet whatever, you know, kind of things we, we experience in our life, then of course also that's uh, skills um, that, we, that, that we learn, that we integrate, that we internalize, that's also going to be there in our meditation. So also with any kind of things that might come up in our meditation, they're going to become useful to us. And we're going to have a much more integrated, you know, um, organic, if you like, kind of sense of growth, you know, which are then uh, naturally also our meditation is going to be part of it. It's much, much more natural and actually workable that way than trying the other way around, you know, trying to somehow conserve the power of our meditation that we have achieved you know, in a rarefied, like hothouse condition in a meditation retreat or meditation retreats because that's what can happen you know, if we then we find oh, it, it, we've got these this good states and results on a meditation retreat and then in, in our ordinary lives it keeps falling apart we become retreat junkies isn't it? some people they just go more and more retreats every year to, to, to get themselves back you know, in, in balance or recharge the batteries you know, and become more, more dependent on it And yet, without ever finding that, that that's really um, that, that, that they really kind of feel really the, uh, that they can integrate the benefits in, in their in their daily lives, even starting to actually see like their their ordinary life is not being spiritual, not part of the spiritual path. So that's I mean, that's a, that's a way of, of cultivating disaster. And so just to, um, just to fill in just the, the last two um, elements that the Buddha, of course, mentioned in the Eightfold Path, the, the, the sixth one is actually the um, right effort. And interesting enough, also the Buddha wasn't talking about the right amount of effort or any specific kinds of effort, but he was talking about it in a very general term, just as saying the effort that is needed in order to allow wholesome states of mind to arise, firstly, and secondly, the energy that's needed to maintain those wholesome states of mind that have arisen, certainly the energy that's needed to get uh, unwholesome states that are in the mind to cease, and uh, the fourth one, that energy that's needed to prevent them from arising again. No. So again, that is something that applies, not just on a meditation cushion, obviously, but anywhere in life. It's just something that, that gives the authority to us to see what is actually needed First of all, to recognize wholesome and unwholesome states of mind, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, and what, what is helpful, what attitudes are helpful, which ones are not helpful, you know, what situations better not to get in, and so forth. It's something that is uh, something to, to, to reflect on, you know, that, that fits in actually right with, with the first factor, with right view, it's something to develop right view about. And the seventh one, of course, mindfulness proper, also something that doesn't apply just on the meditation cushion, but just to pay, to, to pay attention, to notice you know, that which helps us to notice where we are going out of balance, where we are straying off the path, and which direction we need to rear to get back you know, onto that straight and narrow. And then the, the eighth one, Samadhi, I actually already mentioned, rightly, rightfully, then, which is proper, if it's right Samadhi, grows you know, out of proper attention to all the other factors. Then it's one that actually really can, can rise know, in an organic kind of way, in a balanced kind of way, out of actually natural foundation that we have laid. You know, it's then not something that we're going to have to force, you know, trying to achieve, construct by forcing, say, our attention to a meditation object and blotting out those aspects of our experience um, that we perceive to be a disturbance to our concentration. You know. But it, then it, it's something that grows naturally out of a sense of being at ease.
firstly on your meditation cushion, as it were, you know, when you sit down and, and you realize, wow, you know, it's kind of everything's kind of in place. There's nothing really to worry about, nothing to nothing nothing that pulls you out of just enjoying being here, being present, and allowing the mind to settle. Great. Then you allow the mind to settle. And then it's gonna actually gonna happen in, in a quite easy, you know, un unconflicted, natural kind of way. It's gonna be much more uh, it's going to have a different, very, very different feeling, very different texture as a movement, as, as when you're just trying to concentrate. Mm. I would say even then, even if you get all that right, of course there's no, there's no guarantee because we all have got our, you know, particular baggage that we carry with ourselves. You know, a lot of our, the fault lines, as it were, in our personality, in our mind, the cracks through which kind of suffering can enter, and then often laid very early, you know, in our in, in our life, in our childhood, when we can, it's too early for us, where we're not even the capacity to make conscious choices sometimes. And who knows? You know, maybe even baggage that we carry from previous existences, we cannot know. You know. But what we can do is we can just accept to start with what we've got, where we are, and then just put, you know, uh, hold some intention towards you know, developing our capacities, our qualities, but across the whole field you know, of the experience of our life, all the aspects, without leaving anything out. Because whatever we leave out, that's going to become you know, the Achilles heel. Or, and often we've got lots of those, of course. You know, the, the weaknesses that if you don't pay attention to it, they're just going to catch up with us. That's, where we, that's what's going to trip us over. That's what's going to keep manipulating, running our lives, as it were, from the shadows, from, you know, from behind, where we're actually not paying attention. So I'd like to offer that for your attention tonight.